Shalom, everyone. Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights podcast. And here we are, Jim, in the midst of the Torah readings that focus on all of the details of the tabernacle and later to become the Holy Temple, yeah. this week's Parshat Titzaveh. And the amazing thing when you think about it, really, and all of the students of Torah that are, that are with us today will probably be able to agree with this, that it's unparalleled. Where do you find an, an example like this? Where do you find something else in the whole realm of Torah study of something that is given so much fine detail? Right. You know, and, and not only that, but there's, there's going to be what will appear to us initially as repetition, because what's going on in these first Torah portions, last week's Teruma and this week's Titzaveh, is... And I tried to really emphasize this in, in our video presentation last week because it's just so mind-boggling to think about the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, is on Mount Sinai himself with God all this time. And now, you know, according to tradition, this, the whole concept of the oral Torah is that while Moses was on Mount Sinai, God taught Moses everything. All the details of how all the commandments are to be fulfilled all the time. And you know all the all the... A tremendous intricate rulings and 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 um, the, the 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 methods of interpretation that have been handed down that Moses received directly from the mouth of God, as it were, as the expression on Mount Sinai, and that is a a, a, a a such a copious amount of information. It's the entire Talmud. It's it's all the roots and the structure of Torah learning comes from the experience that Moshe had on Mount Sinai, and yet. The part that is emphasized in these Torah portions is if this is all that they were talking about. It's just, it's incredible to think about. It's like, here we are, like, reading the Hashem's diary, honestly, or being like a fly on the wall, that expression, right? That this is Moshe's intimate time with Hashem on Mount Sinai. And this is what they're talking about, nothing else. It just goes on and on. And, and the, the details, it's amazing. And then afterwards, we have Kitisa. Right, and then Moshe comes down, and the chronology is hard is hard to follow. It's confusing. Moshe comes down, sees what he sees, and breaks the tablets at the at the foot of Mount Sinai, the whole debacle of the debacle of the golden calf. And then he goes back up again and comes down on the first Yom Kippur with the message of repentance. And then the next day they start building the tabernacle. And then the last Torah portions of Vayakal and Pikude are the execution, the actual doing, the actual real time of everything that had been given over in these Torah portions. So. So much space is being taken up. For, first, we have what's going on in private, as it were. It's literally, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an exciting experience to think about the fact that we're studying these Torah portions, and this is what's going on between Hashem and Moshe. And then we're going to see it actually put into action. It's going to be repeated again as it's being done, and then there's going to be an accounting of after it was done. So what does that all tell you? You know, that, that's my point. What it all tells you is that this must be amazingly, incomparably important to Hashem mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. to be spending this much detail. Right. This is what struck me when I was rereading the, the, this Torah Parsha. And uh, it, it's, of course, where we, it's the root of the word mitzvah. And that's, that's really a huge key. I, I, I discovered as I was rereading it uh, since, you know, since a year ago. And the because because much of what drives the 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 narrative in this parsha is the fact that it's all about the importance the the, the seriousness of the mitzvot, and what what you alluded to already is 
I'd forgotten how detailed everything was. I mean, I'm really glad you told me in a previous conversation that you're we're gonna you're gonna take we're gonna devote uh, one of your own messages uh, about this parsha on a se- one of your separate uh, commentaries that you do, and it needs to be done because because I could not uh, take in the the level of detail of the description of of the garments of the Kohanim. And this is all about setting up the entire or organization, for want of a better word, uh, the, all the orders of the priesthood. And something that I was reading that really struck me is, is really important, and I'm going to ask you to let us answer this at the end of the podcast when we wrap it up. But what was uh, surprising to me is the name of Moshe Rabbeinu is not in this Parsha. That's quite amazing. That's right. It's the only Torah portion since since he came on the scene and was born, and until the end of Deuteronomy. This is the only Torah portion in which his name is not mentioned. And yet, it begins, "And you shall command the children of Israel." And, and Hashem is speaking to Moshe because it's a continuation; it's contiguous from the time that he went up to Mount Sinai and is still there. And what I found was that there's a, a, among Chazal, the, the Jewish sages, there is a variety of opinions. I found, but I I. Uh, uh, you know, I'm going to be. I humbly want to submit that I even have my own uh, idea uh, to add to all of those things. And I, I always believe in the Torah when it seems like you have all of these uh, opinions that uh, often they all apply. And right. so I, 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 I'd like to discuss that with you, and then maybe even offer one of my own little suggestions of why his name does not appear in, in the Torah. The, the, the one that I wrote down that I liked the most was uh, from uh, Vilna Gaon. And, and anyway, we can talk about that as we, if I can remember to at the end of the Torah Parsha. Um, but um, the, just the, and, and the first time reader of this Parsha, Rabbi, can, if, if, they, if they aren't invested with a kind of awe of, of the text, they could easily mistake this as being a very mundane account of suddenly we're talking about, you know, picking olives and making I'm glad oil. You said that. I'm glad you said that because, because that's a big part of the problem of the, um, just the, just the um, conclusion that so many people have, and including people in the so-called Torah community, including people that should know better, people that, that, that are closer to Torah study, there's a tendency to 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 um, trivialize these Torah portions as being irrelevant, and I mentioned that also in my in the video last week. You know that we tend to to rationalize and to and to even mythologize the whole thing because it's so far from us. You know that, that, that the impression that people have is, well, what is this? It's like a historical account, you know, but it's not very relevant uh, today. And you know, having spent thirty years of my life, uh, you know, in the Temple Institute on the forefront of the temple activism, so I've I've uh, experienced this kind of. Uh, of um, frustration, you know, and I still do, uh, and trying to uh, educate our people about the importance of all of this. But just getting back to the, the how I opened, you know, the the conversation. The 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 idea is, it strikes you when you realize what's going on here, that Moshe is receiving all of this knowledge from Hashem for the purpose of creating, for the purpose of of fulfilling His commandment. And when you think about the fact, and the same same thing applies to the vessels that have we've been learned we learned about so far, 
Last week we learned about the menorah, and we learned about the table of the showbread, and we learned about the Ark of the Covenant, and we and we had that verse that appeared twice in last week's Torah portion. Hashem says, like everything that I showed you in the mountain, including the whole concept of the tabernacle altogether, that Hashem showed Moshe some sort of, what do you want to call it, a hologram? Chazal say a fiery image. That sounds like a, like a celestial hologram that Hashem is showing Moshe, this is exactly how I want it to be. And the same thing now with the priestly garments, with a tremendous amount of detail of, of the garments. And I hope later this week to, uh, to concentrate that on that uh, in our video this week about the big day kuhuna, the priestly garments. What I'm trying to say, Jim, is that the staggering thing when you think about it is that these are Hashem's designs. Yeah. You know? In other words, it's Hashem's idea. This is how he wants it to go. He, this is how he wants the tabernacle to be. This is how he wants these, these clothes to appear, the seven-branch menorah and the table of the showbread. This is, he, he shows to Moshe, this is how I want you to do it. This is his patent. This is his ideas. And that just shows us again, as I mentioned, that it must be very, very important to him. And so, again, we, 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 we understand all of that in the light of the fact that we have such a disconnect from all of this. It's been so long. We're like fish out of water. And here we are trying to like fit ourselves into something that we, we, ha we it's just been so not part of our world, not part of our education. And we're viewing the whole thing through the lens of our contemporary society and upbringing and the values that we have been taught. I'm saying we, uh, not just as a people, but the whole global experience of, of you know, 2,000 years. And we're trying to, to see this through that lens and it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work because we've been, even even if we've tried to keep ourselves separate, and even if we've tried to keep ourselves pure as far as the way our minds work, by osmosis, f these influences have, have crept in, where, whereby we think, whereby our conception of God in this world is distorted. And... We ha and everybody has this idea that you know that God wants such and such and such because, because this is what He needs, as it were, or because this is how He needs to be approached, or this is how He needs to be placated, or this is how, this is this is this is the equation that He set up for us to approach Him, and the temple and everything about it in all of these Torah portions, it's exactly the opposite, and honestly, none of this is really for Him. This is all a program for man to be to elevate this world and to elevate himself and to free himself from the cycle of what should I call it? Just the 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 um, spiritual um, you know um, atrophy that creeps in because of our materialism and because of the way we view things and and the whole ecosystem, delicate ecosystem, the balance that Hashem has put us in this world to be able to overcome. The, the urge for materialism and to be able to make the right choices it's very very difficult in every single aspect of the temple service wait till we get to the offerings right in the book of, of Leviticus and how problematic yeah. that is for so many people that want to walk the walk of Torah but they feel like what do I do with this I can't relate to this it's so it's so foreign it's so God forbid they use the word like pagan like what is this like God, God wants animals to be sacrificed the understanding is so distant from us because it's a world of knowledge it's a world of spiritual ascent it's a world of most importantly tikkun of fixing of rectifying of being given an opportunity to elevate our spiritual essence 
and and it, and it, it's an uphill battle. You know, it's an uphill battle to understand all of this. Yeah. Well, the thing that uh, struck uh, struck me immediately when I began to, of course, I got a lot of help. I was I was reading one of my my uh, my favorite commentaries, which is uh, Rav Hirsch, Rav Samson, Raphael Hirsch, just a brilliant Torah commentary. And, and a, a gentleman who I was, after I'd been reading his commentaries for so long, I, and I, I have to confess I didn't know a, a lot about Rav Hirsch, and then I found out he'd lived roughly in the mid-1800s. And I was shocked because, because his teachings and his thoughts are so very contemporary and, and so ahead of, of even our time in, in a lot of respects. And, and I just want to I just yeah, want to say this one thing. He he actually was it was one of the, one of his main things was he was a champion against the newly emerging reform movement. Yeah, he certainly was. And 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 which and, that, and his whole thing, his whole banner that he raised high was mm-hmm. exactly this point was to demonstrate the relevancy and and the authenticity and the and the contemporary need for for true Torah values. Yeah. And he reinforces with his commentary on this this parsha in in, in so so vividly because uh, the uh, ju- just something again to, to almost uh, I hate to even use the word, but it, it's seemingly mundane when it talks about the you know uh, picking the olives and and getting them ready for the pressing, and he and he points out in his commentary he really leads the way and he and he sets he sort of sets up for you he helps you to to want to look at every description here in this parsha is something other than what is on the page. It is he he elevates these these seemingly everyday terms to to the point where I'm I'm reading about the pressing of the oil I'm I'm in that mindset he's put me in and and the and then I'm reading I'm also going into the 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 other uh, sources and how the oil for the menorah uh, was picked it was picked there were there were like nine different harvests. And every time there were there were three separate harvests, but three different harvests on the same trees, and they would stop at they would sort of the the, uh, the top of the tree, where the the olives got the most light. They were they were given the most they received the most light, and so therefore by the time it was ready, because the oil from the manure had to be very pure. I know, I know you know this, and a lot of our audience does. That by the time it was ready to harvest, it, the oil hardly had to be pressed, and it had to be pressed by hand, and it wasn't it wasn't crushed in a you know in a typical olive press. It had to be taken by hand. But as he describes it, the oil was so ready to come out of the out of the olives, it was almost like it, the olives were giving it of them giving of themselves, which is the whole the whole uh, cycle of the korbanot. Uh, because they, because all things in creation are are giving to Hashem and are are giving to each other all the way up the the food chain to the point where we take our and this is again the whole message of the, of of the Torah is that the, the the priesthood you can read them and you can read the way that they uh, participate in all of these very specific actions that are part of the temple service, they are a stand-in for the people of Israel and how they should commit every day their gifts, their skills that Hashem gave them. 
wherein they become a stand-in for us, for humanity. Like, this is the way you should live. And it it, it always reminds me, I don't want to really diminish these ideas, but it's, you know, it it makes me think of, in some ways, of, you know, the Japanese have their tea services. You know, and if you ever watch them, they're very, uh, they have these very gentle, very graceful ideas about making tea. And you read that and you go, okay, fine. But this is, you know, they're, they're trying to infuse every action with, uh, with value and importance. But the Torah takes that idea, or rather it's really a, a, originally a Torah idea. The Torah shows you that, that service to Hashem, it should be considered like that. There's no time wasted. It's Hashem's wasted. idea. Exactly. It, it, with, you know, call a kavod to the Japanese. Yeah. You know what that means. In other words, right. like, of course, I, pre- I appreciate the tea service. But the point is that Hashem's yeah. idea is that everything that goes on in this place affects a, a rectification. Yeah. That's that. That's just it. And and he wrote this script, and he he made all of this design. And and ex- you're right, exactly. In that, everything that goes on there is meant to uh, to to enable the person to focus their consciousness and not to be distracted by the illusion of this world and not to be pulled down by materialism. It's it's absolutely a controlled environment, and that's why you know when Chazal and the sages. You know, make this comparison between the temple and the Garden of Eden, and and they make it in such a strong way by by even saying that it's really the same place. You know that the on some obviously we don't see it uh, with the naked eye on the Temple Mount, but the, the on a, in a metaphysical sense, the place of the Holy Temple is the Garden of Eden. The place of the Holy of Holies is the place of the Tree of Life. The place of the altar is the place of the Tree of Knowledge. In some dimension, what does that mean? It means that everything that goes on in the temple is an, is a is a a part of the program of fixing what went wrong with the tree of knowledge, which of course was not listening to Hashem, and really the whole iconography of Hashem being welcomed into this world again in the in the tabernacle is like a fixing of Hashem banishing Adam from the Garden of Eden because Hashem is like basically let's say let's try it again. You know, like my darling, you know, let's try it. Let's try it again to get along and to have and to set up house, you know, to set up house. Look at look at it's a house. You have you have a, a light fixture and you have a table and the Holy of Holies in the language of the Kabbalists is called the bedroom because that is the symbol of the again, in, in the purest and holiest sense, that is the symbol of the the. Uh, closest level of of intimacy between God and man is symbolized by the by the cherubim on the ark of the covenant that's that that's Hashem wants us to feel that kind of closeness with him that kind of level of attachment and devotion that's the idea that's the secret of the song of songs the whole the whole idea of experiencing what love really is between between a man and a woman is a metaphor for the way Hashem feels about us as it were and again, this is something that can't be trivialized or, God forbid, or, or uh, mocked because this is a very, very high level of understanding that, that the sages are referring to. So the temple is like a microcosm of life as it could be. And here we come to these Torah portions. I'm just sounding off because, again, it's, it's been such a strong part of my life for so many years. You come to these Torah portions and people are like, what is this? This is like 2024, you know, what are all of these details and what, and, you know, like, and so they, and so therefore there's a tendency that many Torah students have to utterly um, 
strip the, the, the uh, verses of their simple interpretation, and instead they, they, they say, well, this symbolizes this type of wisdom, and this symbolizes this, and it's all on a symbolic level, because nobody can consider the fact that we're actually supposed to do exactly what this says. And that's why I, I, I made an issue of, of addressing this. If you saw our video last week, uh, which we for Parshat Truma, which we actually called Israel's War for the Temple Mount. That's what this is all about, because the, the because our enemy that we're fighting now makes no bones about the fact that this is all about. They're calling it the War of Al Aqsa, because whoever is con, in in control of that place is basically in control of everything, and that this is why Hashem tells us this is the place which is the center of the world. This is the secret of Gan Eden, and it, and the question is, and this is like Dave was saying last week. This is the container. Like he, kept, he kept talking about the container. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What do you want to do with the power, the holiest place in the world? Are you going to uplift Hashem? Because everything that goes on in the temple is about uplifting everything to Hashem and returning everything to Hashem and acknowledging ours, our frailty in this world. And every single one of these details is like a pageant of meaning that's going on in the holy temple. And again, it's just it's painful to me that it's like an uphill battle uh, against this this tide of trivialization that people are thinking, well, you know, what is the relevancy of, of of the tabernacle today when we can't build the temple and and uh, you know it's a diff- different geopolitical reality and 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 the and all the different considerations that the world arena has. <clears throat> but this is Hashem's answer. Hashem's answer is, and that's why it takes up so much space in in Torah because there's a process that's going on there all the time of sanctification of life. And that's what's missing from the world today. The world today is one big, savage slaughterhouse. And that's why the Holy Temple fixes that that whole uh, uh, realm of experience through the offerings on the altar, which, uh, which facilitate man's realignment to his own humanity. And that's why you mentioned the great Rav Hirsch. He stresses this idea... And so does Nachmanides. Both of them, they, they really point out this unbelievable fact that unfortunately goes unnoticed by many students of Torah, which is that throughout the entire book of Leviticus, we'll talk about this when, when the time comes, certainly in a few weeks, the only name of God that's ever mentioned is the holy name of Hashem, of yud and vav the Tetragrammaton, which, of course, you know, that name is consistently consi- consistently signifying Hashem's kindness, Hashem's mercy, Hashem's compassion. You never find the name Elohim there, or even the name Shaddai. Any of the other names that that um, symbolize, you know, restriction or judgment or or any of those other divine attributes, it's only the name of mercy, and and that comes as a surprise to some people because they look at the whole idea of the offerings in the temple and they think, but this is not merciful. This is a whole thing of like killing these animals. That's not what it's about. It's about mercy on man. It's about Hashem having compassion on the human being who is the center of creation to grab hold of himself and to stop giving in to his own animal nature. Right, right. And again, it's not, it's not like God needs this atonement so that he won't zap us. It's that man needs atonement. You know, man, man needs to grab a hold of himself and, and sift through all of his urges. That's exactly the experience that happens, you know, when we come to the altar with an offering. But, but then we have this other thing that's going on in, in today's Torah portion we, before we get to Leviticus, which is so amazing, and that is the whole concept of the incense. 
which is not which is not really a representation of the material realm at all because it's the sense of smell you know it's something that's very very um kind of ethereal that that whole idea so what what is that all about you know at the end of of parshat Tzavah, i don't want to skip the whole beginning of parshat Tzavah. there's so much to talk about but since i brought this up you know the whole idea of the incense altar and then in next week's parsha of Kitisa, we, you know, Hashem describes the spices to Moshe. Not all of them, because there are actually eleven altogether, and the rest of them He gives over orally at Mount Sinai. But what is the idea of the incense offering, Jim? What is that? What is that all about? When I years ago learned that the word Torah simply means instruction, it was like turning on a light bulb for me—a a little menorah over my head, you know. <laughs> And the fact is, is that is that everything you know. This is if if someone approaches this parsha and says, "What am I supposed to get out of all this?" It's just it's almost like an inventory and with a set of instructions. Yeah, that's it. Because I have to tell you that that rereading this parsha um, reinvigorated me with this idea that um, how much we need a temple. Because because every moment is is a teaching moment. Every line, when you're reading the, these these uh, these instructions to, to Moshe and to the children of Israel, it is constantly uh, uh, the everything in the, everything in the tabernacle is like a visual aid. It's like show and tell. It's 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 fraught with with so much meaning, and so we get to the incense. And all I can think of is, you know, for a long time, you know, we were digging with my teacher of, of blessed memory, Vendel Jones, and on the 92 dig, we uncovered what we believed was the incense, and we had it tested, and we, we uh, uh, first by a, uh, uh, the, uh, a consultant uh, at uh, the Weissman Institute, and then years later by a gentleman who was a, a paleontologist, and they, a paleontologist actually um, will analyze the grain structure of ancient pollens. And in this material that we found, we found 600 kilograms of red substance in this cave down there, Qumran. We found 11 different components that he separated and was able to recognize through their grain structure. And, and what one of the things that I began to look at is, you know, like you said, you asked the question, what is the purpose of the incense? And the the first thing that came to my mind was the fact that um, when during the temple services in, in Jerusalem, that women didn't have to wear perfume in Jerusalem because because the the, the smell of the incense would would uh, invade all the quarters of Jerusalem, and they have this wonderful smell. And they also said that the people down near Jericho knew when the, they were burning incense in, in the, the, uh, the temple is the goats began to sneeze. But the thing that struck me the most, the opinion that really said something and speaks to all of us is, it says that the, when the priests were burning the the, uh, the as in Hebrew, that the priests were very happy and and. Uh, there are a different a, a lot of ways to look at that, but what um, what struck me is the way we respond. Each every human beings we respond to smells like, and this is the best example I can give is that the first time that I I'd been eating hot house tomatoes for a long time, 
And then one time I went into a store that had had locally produced tomatoes, and I remember, you know, smell and taste are so you know are linked together. And the taste of that tomato that was homegrown suddenly released memories of of like things I hadn't thought of years ago. So I, I think, boy, I'm really getting, I'm really rambling here. But what I'm saying is, is that uh, the, the sense of smell that we that we uh, that is evoked with the incense is a reminder that um, the intangible things in life. Which which are on par with the spiritual in many ways. The intangible things you can't you know you can't weigh a smell. You can't you can't see how long it is. You, you, there's no metric for it in many ways. That uh, that there are things in the physical realm that are constant reminders of of things that we cannot uh, see or or, or or touch. Is that making any sense? I don't know. I'm, I'm every single word that you said is uh, is impeccably perfect. Actually, believe it or not, and and I'm, and the places that you're going are exactly where I would want to go with this because you're completely right. It is something that is connected to what might be considered to be intangible. Uh, let me just say before I say anything that this whole subject, like so many other aspects of the temple studies, all of these things that are going on there, the garments and all of the detail and everything that we want to speak about the Kohanim also in, uh, today. Everything that's going on here is a world of knowledge and and the the meaning is layer upon layer upon layer. You know our good friend Rabbi Sutton, I actually wrote a book a while ago. Good, good friend right? of both of us. Yes, The Spiritual Significance of the Ketorah is a is a beautiful a beautiful writing of Rabbi Avraham Sutton. I don't know if he ever actually published it in a permanent book form. He he gave me this this um, private printing some some time ago, and it's so deep, it unbelievable secrets that he he shares about the inner meaning of the incense. So that's just my prefatory remarks. Um, there's so there's so much going on here, but let me just put it simply because you brought up some uh, and, I, and this is a it's a lifetime of study the spiritual significance of the Qatar. But let me just say obviously, it's connected to the sense of smell, and the sense of smell we've spoken about this before is a window to the soul, and this is something also that's well known and and uh, documented exactly what you said that the sense of smell can evoke the earliest memories. The purest memories, the happiest memories, also. Uh, there's the whole concept of aromatherapy, you know, because it's it is literally a a spiritual um, opening. This is why we make the blessing over the sweet spices at the end of Shabbat as part of Havdalah. You know, the, there's a whole teaching in the deeper deeper level of Torah wisdom that on Shabbat we receive an extra soul. There's like a there's like a an added soul. It's an added dimension of spirituality that we receive on Shabbat because of the holiness of Shabbat, and and when Shabbat departs, there's a certain kind of like um, heaviness, a certain kind of depression that invades the soul because we're giving up that extra edge of spirituality. And so to usher out the Sabbath queen, as it were, to usher out that extra soul, we smell the sweet spices because, as as I say, just say. The sense of smell is something that the soul derives benefit from, but the body doesn't. You know, so that goes like straight for the soul. So that's part of the division between the weekday and Shabbat. And why is that again? I know you're familiar with this, and I'm sure many of our viewers also remember learning that 
when it comes to the sin, again, everything always goes back to the tree of knowledge. When it comes to the sin in the, in the uh, I don't even like calling it a sin because it was part of the plan. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't li- I personally do not like referring to what Adam and Eve did as a sin because it was a choice that they made. And yes, it was a pretty bad choice. It was a bad choice, but it was part of the, the plan, actually. But th- this is another, another idea. But in any event, when you read about what, when we learn about what happened there and how Eve reached out and touched it and, and, and how they, they saw that it was good to make one wise, every sense is described there but the sense of smell. And the sages, and they ate and they tasted, the sages say that the only sense that was not blemished from that experience was the sense of smell. And therefore the sense of smell remains high, you see. And that's also why we actually find several verses in the Tanakh that equates the sense of smell with purity. And for example, Mashiach himself, Messiah, is... Um, symbolized by or, or, or associated with the purity of the sense of smell. That's why Isaiah says in one verse, I, which, which is always translated as, I have filled him with the spirit of the fear of God. But the word is actually, the word is actually means that I have given him the sense of smell right. <laughs> of the fear of God. And this is why our sages state in the Talmud that, that the Messiah will be, will be able to smell out truth it has to do with, because, and then this is another whole idea in the secrets of the Torah that the pure, the sense of smell that a person has is indicative of that person's sexual purity because the two are related. Since a sense of smell is, is, is indicative of a person that's on a high level of purity. Also in Lamentations, we have a verse uh, that, that uh, Mashiach is called the breath of our nostrils. So he's always associated with this, this, this idea of breathing. Again, that's, that has to do with the purity of the the sense of smell having been not affected by by the sin, but but in any event, so uh, you know, a person makes bad choices in the world. Again, the whole concept of everything that goes on in the Beit Hamikdash is to bring a person closer to Hashem by making him realize how important the sanctification of life is, and how important it is for him to, you know, to listen to Hashem. But when we do make the bad choices, when a person does sin, there's a there's a, a kind of spiritual and material pollution that sets in, both in him personally and in the world. And these are things that have to be addressed. That's the whole idea of, of kapara, right? This concept of atonement that is so misunderstood. That's been again, uh, kind of um, kidnapped by by other by other theologies, you know. But and, and so th- and that's always interpreted. And what does the Torah mean by atonement? It's not at all what Christianity thinks of of atonement. But the idea is that there is there is a certain kind of uh, damage that's been done, and it has to be fixed both in the level of a person's soul as well as the spiritual damage that was caused by by a person going against Hashem's command. And so the 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 uh, the korbanot, the animal offerings basically address the material side of things of, of, because a person does damage to his own body, as it were, and that has to be rectified on some level for him to be able to see what's going on and the whole concept of what Nachmanides says this, this all represents and how every animal represents a different human attribute and how all of the attention that Torah gives in the book of Leviticus about the different parts of the animal, what has to be burned where, what's given to the Kohen, what's burnt on the altar, it all has to do with a parallel in, in, in a human being so that this experience becomes like a, like a therapeutic kind of experience. But what about the soul? 
So words, if the, what I'm trying to say is if the korbanot correspond to the body, the ketoret corresponds to the soul. Amen. Yeah. That's exactly. exactly the idea that it's that it's kind of like an interface between the soul and the reality that's been created and and getting getting that back to on par. And there's no co- there's no coincidence, Rabbi, that the that there are five senses, and there are five books of the Torah, and we've talked about this before. How the five sen- just our five senses. Uh, are the are the only things that connect us to the to the tangible reality? We process everything only through those five senses, and I think that that is our connection to Hashem. Hashem is saying, "I'm, I'm you need to elevate your your use of all of these senses." And and you know, it's an interesting idea that um, everything that we in, that we derive benefit from in this world, uh, let's say a, a food. Or we make a blessing beforehand, and we also make a blessing afterwards. Make a blessing beforehand and ask permission, as it were, from Hashem to use that which He has created for for ourselves, and and we acknowledge Him and we thank Him, and then we make a blessing afterwards as well. And the blessing afterwards has to do with more with the concept of rectifying the the force, as it were, that that is in that thing, the life force, and how it's now become part of us. After, and when a person eats a certain amount of food, you know, uh, if he eats enough of a, of a certain food, then there's a, he's, a, he's required to make a, a, the, the grace after meals after that. But when it comes to a sense of smell, there is no after blessing. There's no after blessing, first of all, because it's not like you can smell a certain amount because it doesn't have, a, it doesn't have any volume. It doesn't have a tangible amount. But the truth is, right, but the truth is, the, the, the deep reason why there's no after-blessing after the sense of smell is because there's nothing to fix. Because it's actually pristine. The, the whole concept of, and this is how the sages express it in the Talmud, that the sense of smell is something that the soul derives direct benefit from. And the interesting thing when you think about the Ketorit offering, of course, is that it always seems to be an issue of life and death. Life and death, literally. Because on the one hand... Let's say uh, a non-Kohen who brings the incense offering is liable for the death penalty. When Aaron's sons brought uh, Aaron's sons who were Kohen and brought an unauthorized incense offering, you, you know what happened to them. And at the same time, in, in, when it came to the rebellion of Korach, it was actually Aaron realized that it was actually the secret of the Ketorah that stopped the retribution from coming. Also, so there is that double edge to it as well. And, and another interesting thing about the, the incense is that it's the only offering in the temple which is brought from the community. And as, in other words, there are, of course, there are many offerings that are brought in the temple. There's the, there's the daily offering, the tamid, but a person can, can uh, volunteer, can, can um, you know, um, of his own free will, can bring an offering, can bring a Thanksgiving offering, can bring an offering, Right. But the but the ketorah that's offered in the temple is always from the community. It's always from funded by the community. It's always representative of the community. And the whole concept that our sages teach us that it, of the eleven spices that are that comprise the secret of exactly how the incense is compounded, they all have a beautiful aroma except for one. And there's one particular smell, one particular spice that has a, a very displeasing odor. 
And yet, according to the secret recipe, and that's really what it is, of exactly how the incense is compounded, it makes a very, very beautiful aroma. Despite the, the presence of that, of that spice, and even more so because of it, because of it, because it, it contributes its thing to the, to the uh, fragrance. And this is a whole thing that the sages talk about at great length about how that is representative of a person that is not necessarily on the right path, that a person, a person that's even a sinful person, right? But, the, but no one is ever excluded from the community. And, it's, and that's what Hashem wants, you know, there's this like the opposite of being judgmental, the opposite of, of disqualifying someone, of canceling someone, of dissing someone because they don't satisfy our requirements, because we think that they're not good enough, because we think that they shouldn't be counted, that they shouldn't be present or something like that. On the, on the contrary, the good smell comes about when all the ingredients are connected in the right way. Yeah, they, there are, you know, Rabbi, there are, there are actually nine spices this is very interesting. There are nine actual spices in this compound of the Ketoret. The others are, one is they add Sodom salt. Sodom salt is one of the, is one of the things added. The other is, uh, um, the, uh, it's a plant that's, that's not really a spice, but it's called the smoke razor. It causes razor. the smoke to rise up. Uh, right. Straight right. up. Not to disagree with you, but but I am disagreeing with you. Those those two things are a separate count. There are actually 11 spices altogether, and oh, okay. those two things are counted separately. I'm sorry. I, I always thought it was just That's nine okay. and, and, and the, the, other, the other two. But what I wanted to ask you before I forget it, I'm sorry, really you, you, you said something. Could, could this be something, uh, the idea of this, this uh, I don't know if it's Galbana, or, or the the one you referred to, yeah, which is has this right. this odd pungency to it, but but when it's mixed with the katorit, is there is there a connection between the idea of sweetening the judgment that goes along with that or not, or am I off? I'm on sure, that? very much so. Sure, in, in fact, this one on the on the I know that the Kabbalists teach that on on that level of understanding, that's what the katorit is all about. Mm-hmm. It's all about bringing about a sweetening. That's that's why it stops the plague. Yeah, exactly. It, and then we 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 read often in in the of uh, the Corbanot, especially for instance in um, uh, Noah when he came out of the ark, he made his first offering, and it speaks of of Hashem considering it like a sweet smelling savor. And I know this people go, well, wait a minute, you know, God doesn't need anything sweet smelling. But again, it's the it's, it's this idea that we're and it's trying not to... the smell of the burning meat. It's right. This, it's the it's the sense yeah. again. There, there we have the symbolism of the sense of smell, right? As it were, even applied to God, as it were, mm-hmm. yeah. meaning that He senses the spiritual maturity and and the and the recognition that's going on inside the person who has been motivated to bring the offering. Yeah. Yeah, and the other idea that we I touched on earlier the the, the fact that when when the uh, the incense was 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 burning in the Beit Hamikdash in Yerushalayim that the smell would pervade the the air around Yerushalayim. Can you can you even take in what that would be like to be walking the streets of Jerusalem and that that as a, as a citizen of the Commonwealth of of Israel you're there walking through the streets of Yerushalayim. And you suddenly smell the katorit. And even though you can't see the, the temple and the temple services, there is that invisible reminder of what's going on in the Beit HaMikdash 
and and every time you would smell that, you would have to be. It would have to remind you of of when you you went to the 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 temple for one of the three harvest festivals or whenever you went there to smell that. It, it, we're talking about again the connection between memories and the sense of smell. How how that would how that would even if you you know you could be doing something like thinking about doing something wrong and suddenly you'd smell the katorat and you would think oh my god you know this is this is what I'm here for I'm here to to uh, to be the uh, the person that God says I have the potential to be and just that smell would would maybe make someone uh, you know. Turn back it's on amazing. The, the the path. Yeah, it's such a beautiful, beautiful idea. And again, it's it's more than the idea of the sensory experience. Just as Hashem doesn't want a sensory experience, He doesn't smell anything. So uh, right, <laughs> that's not what it's about. So too, for, even for a person, more than the sensory experience, it's the feeling that all's right with the world. That this is the world of Hashem. That this is that everything is in a balance. And again, the power of the Ketor, What what is it? You know, to demystify it because we're 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 saying it represents this, it represents that, and it does, and it, and it sweetens the judgment. Why? And I'm emphasizing this idea about about it being representative of the community, that it's paid for by the community, that it's a community offering, that that it represents even those that we might not approve of, and even those whose behavior is not where it should be. But Hashem wants, Hashem values unity more than anything else, and that's the power that stops the plague, and that's the power that brings healing, and that's the power that sweetens the judgment. It's when there is this acceptance and when there's this idea of, of, of um, appreciating everyone for who they are and bringing everyone together. And that maybe is the sense that you're describing also in, uh, of the temple. It's a, it's a cosmic balance that it brings to the world. Leading to the thing that we really need to talk about today, which is, well, who are the stewards that make all of this happen? And that's the main attraction, the main the main actual focus of this week's Torah portion is the men who are basically entrusted to be the conduits of blessing that are bringing all of this into the world, the Kohanim. And it's, it's really, again, remarkable, the lineal descendants of Aaron, uh, the first part of the parsha talks about their, the, um, um, after t- talking about the oil for the men, we're talking about the garments, which is, again, it's a whole world that I, I hope to be able to spend some more time to focus on the rep, what all of these garments represent and, what, and why Hashem should be so, as it were, hyper-focused on the design of the garments that the men that are serving before Him are, are, um, are wearing. But who are they? What is this all about? We have the whole inauguration in this Torah portion of this this incredible you know, process that they go through in order to, to prepare themselves for the service, right? By the way, I was reminded that of this wonderful book. Don't say anything yet, right? This wonderful <laughs> book written by an old friend of mine, Rabbi Yaakov Kleiman, DNA and the Bible, the genetic link. Don't say anything yet because I want to surprise you. So they have this one, we have this wonderful book and um, Rabbi Kleiman and I used to learn together. This is a very, very beautiful work that talks about the Kohen gene, Right, the Kohen gene, and it talks about the fact that all Jewish people basically share genetic markers from the Middle East. Ashkenazi Jews as well, you know, there's this whole thing, are Ashkenazi really Jews? And this whole, all that ridiculous nonsense. And the, and the fact is that all Jewish people come from the same source. This is an amazing book, and, it, and it's uh, exciting because it talks about 
the uh, promise that Hashem made, basically. This is the, I find this remarkable, right? There's two verses in the Torah. One is in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 15 that says, And it shall be for them an appointment as priests forever, for all generations. And then we find in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 5, for, the, for Hashem your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to serve in the name of Hashem, him and his sons forever. And here it, it, it's like Hashem said something, and Hashem's word is not just a statement that was said in, in a loud voice or something. It's the substance of reality. Hashem is the substance of reality. So he's, he said something, and it's like stamped in the flesh of Kohanim forever, whether they know it or not, whether they're practicing or not, because they all carry a DNA, a, a DNA stamp, yeah. right? A, a, a it's chromosome. A, it's I think. a gene marker, is what it is. A gene marker. Yeah. That is not shared by any other people in the world, but, by, but all descendants of Aaron, and not the female. Right, but all descendants of of black, white from from uh, Poland or from Mozambique, for anywhere, they all have the same marker. It's r- absolutely r- fascinating. Anyway, I was looking at this book today, thinking about our show, and I see that there's an a, an inscription in it. <laughs> I took it off the shelf, and I see it's inscribed. And I said, "Oh, did Rabbi Kleiman give me this copy?" And I'm reading. It says Rabbi Richman with compliments and great. Regard from the publisher Jim and Carol Long. Hello, yeah. Way way back in five seven seven zero, which is fourteen years ago. Yes, because this was published by Lightcatcher Books, and I don't know if our viewing audience is aware of the fact that Jim Long, in addition to being a leading Egyptologist and filmmaker and all of the incredible things that he's done, also has a publishing company called Lightcatcher Books. Well, I appreciate the plug, Rabbi. I got to tell you oh, that, that, that uh, the reason that we published that was the same reason that we published another book of another good friend of ours, Isaac Moseson, is unbelievably they, the publishers lost interest in, in their work. And, and I, I think that that does not diminish the value of this book. It's the fact that I think there, I think there's a lot of timing involved in, in these books coming out. And I think the public wasn't wasn't ready or didn't care. And I think now, one of the amazing things that that, uh, that uh, uh, and I I'm not recommending the book because we sell it. I'm, I'm recommending the book because we only publish books that we love and that we want to read. And one thing that's not in the book that because because it sparked my interest in this this uh, subject matter is. Um, in fact, I'm going to talk to to uh, Rob Kleiman about maybe even if he doesn't update, adding this idea because he's probably continuing. Is this study called epigenetics? And the reason I became interested in that, and it has to do with the idea of this gene marker. Um, it's a mutation, Rabbi. It's a mutation. It was never it w- it never existed before. This is what's very interesting. This gene marker, it's called the Cohen modal haplotype. And as you just uh, told the audience, it, it only is carried by, by men who are, uh, who are of this lineage of Aaron, of the Aaronic priesthood. And they have names. And, and, and uh, in, in the book, uh, he, he even mentions more of the book. But anyway, epigenetics is the study of how our genes are impacted how we literally, uh, our, our DNA can be rewritten in some aspects. And uh, 
a geneticist did a study of this because he was he was Jewish and he was not a uh, an observant Jew, and he said that if if I had not uh, uh, if we hadn't done the math on this and, and and counted back, we decided to find out how old this gene marker. When did this mutation occur in this family? And he said it was just over three thousand years ago. So what's what but what's further interesting about that is is that. Uh, uh, is is how Hashem uh, the the the, uh, the method Hashem chose to engrave the the uh, the family of Aaron with that gene marker is that epigenetics reveals that experiences that are very strong, especially within a community, it will be it will literally show up in their DNA as a mutation, whether it's a trauma or whether it's, it's, it's very dramatic events. And just as we're reading this Torah Parsha about this week-long investiture of the Kohanim, can you imagine anything more... more uh, uh, I, I, I can't think of what the positive word for trauma is, but the opposite of trauma, this, this joyful, earth-shaking experience of the creator of time and space giving you a role of the priesthood literally to, you know, uh, not only Israel, but to the planet when you really get right down to it. And, and so this is, this, is, this is all connected to, it, it shows you the physical proof of, of the Kohanim uh, that exists with us today, you know. I want to see, see you and raise you. Please, please I do. Wanna, I want to suggest something, I want to suggest something um, uh, uh, that just occurred to me, which I think I've, I've seen our sages speak of. So you're saying that this mutation came about through a powerful experience. Exactly. Like the inauguration that we're reading about now. The only thing about that is that the inauguration took place after Hashem chose them. So let me go back further. Let me go back further. Because, you know, and this is a very, very deep idea, but, you know, there's an idea... I mean, because why did Hashem choose Aaron, and why did he cho- why did he make this covenant with him and his children forever? So you know that all of Israel is commanded to be holy. We have all these rules in the Torah about how we have to live because we have to elevate our lives, we have to elevate our material existence, and we have to make choices, and all the things that we always talk about. And the Kohanim have their own separate set of rules as well, in addition to that, the rules of priestly conduct, how they are not supposed to become impure, and how they have to really take a lot of safeguards because of the fact that they are the ones that are really bringing the shefa, the influx of divine blessing into the world through their service in the temple. They direct the flow of divine blessing, literally. Uh, and uh, so we have a verse, like for example, Leviticus 21, the priest must be holy to his God. You must keep him holy for he presents the offering to your God, right? He must be holy for I am Hashem, I am holy and I am making you holy. So it is again. We always define holiness as separation, but they have this ministry, as it were, to bring this blessing into the world, right? So, Jim, you know what? One of the th- ideas about the Kohanim is that they represent kindness. Amen. Yeah, that's they Aaron. Are, they are they, they they are synonymous with the sphera of Chesed. So, for example, and and that means basically. Uh, focusing life's energies on on divine purpose, right? But you know that there's a there's a an idea that it was the attribute of kindness 
more than anything else that, uh, that Aaron, that Aaron, the first high priest, was known for. And his descendants are, are entrusted to carry that, that, that on. And there's a, the famous Mishnah in the chapters of the fathers, right? Be of the, of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace and pursuing peace, loving your fellow creatures and drawing them near to the Torah. But listen, this is what I wanted to say, and I think this is an amazing thought. You know that back in the book of Exodus, when um, Moshe kept on demurring, right? Moshe kept trying to get out of the job. He kept <laughs> yeah. trying to say no. And, you know, Chazal said it actually was a, a week, <laughs> a week of, of Hashem saying, you know, I, I want you to go. Don't worry, I'll be with you. And, 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 and then he said, please, I'm not a man of words, not since yesterday. And Hashem said, who makes a mouth for man? Who makes him speak? So Chazal said this is going on and on because Moshe really didn't want the job. But then finally we read in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 14, the wrath of Hashem burned against Moshe. And he said, is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he will surely speak. Moreover, behold, he is going out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will rejoice in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I shall be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach you both what you are to do. So he'll be your spokesman, right? And then, and then Moshe didn't argue anymore. So, so Hashem, Hashem uh, you know, negated the, the conversation that way. What does this mean? This is an amazing verse that Hashem said to, to Moshe. He's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he's going to be happy to see you. And so the idea is, like, Moshe is the younger brother, and he just... <laughs> And this revelation, right? He's the, he's the one that is being chosen by God. He's had this experience. Hashem is speaking to him. He has this intimate relationship with Hashem. Maybe Aaron is going to be jealous. Like maybe, but what about me? Like I'm, I'm the older brother. Why, you know, why'd you, skip, why'd you skip over me? You know, like, but no, Hashem is saying he is completely selfless. And when he sees you, he's going to be glad. He's going to be glad for you when you're going to tell him everything. I know him, and he is not going to have a, 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 an ounce of any sort of sibling rivalry or jealousy or anything like that. In fact, it's like, it's like, it's like they're like a tikkun for that whole, that whole kind of um, messed up dynamic of brotherhood that went through the book of Genesis that everybody suffered from so much from Cain and Abel through Yosef and his brothers, right? Yaakov but, and Esav, but, all of Yes, them. Yeah. exactly, yes. But no, he's going to see you, he's going to be glad in his heart. So I, w- I want to suggest to you that that was the source of the mutation. Oh, wow, yeah. This, the, this, that was his, the source of the mutation. His heart sort of the, leaping for joy and... Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. It was, a, it, was a, it was an event because, uh, because Hashem is is telling us over and over again. And here, even in Perkei Avot, we find this mission to be of the disciples of Aaron, loving peace, pursuing peace. So there's something about the clan, as it were, that is supposed to exemplify this and bring, and bring it into the world. I want to tell our viewers, can, can, I, can they get at this from you still, Jim? Yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah, just, so just, I want to highly recommend this beautiful yeah. book, DNA and the Bible, The Genetic Link by, Rab- by Rabbi Yaakov Kleiman. And... Everybody can order it online from either like, Amazon. Like they books. can they can order it on print. They can also order it as an ebook, like Kindle, or they can order it from us at lightcatcherbooks.com. It's it's that simple. So uh, I appreciate Beautiful. that very much. You know, I I um, um th- this whole uh, idea of, about the priesthood. 
the thing that the 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 big takeaway that that I that Hashem uh, provided me with, and I'm so grateful for that this this time around. You know, every time you read a Torah parsha, you know, thank God you you glean something new from it you you didn't see before. That's another wonder of the Torah is is returning to these pages and and being shown things anew. <coughs> Excuse me, and and. Um, and help me out here if I'm off on the wrong, if I'm off the derrick on this. But it seems to me that this that this parsha, which is so much more remarkable than I had even thought of before, um, is this not? First of all, here's the question I have. You know, uh, we you uh, when we discussed doing this parsha, you, we said we want to talk about the reason for the for the going. What why why were they created? And I'm wondering if. Um, if they were not uh, first and foremost, do we consider them teachers of Israel? Is that right or not? Absolutely. Okay. So if they are the teachers of Israel, then 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 again, it's 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 like that idea of throwing a rock in the water, and the waves go out, and as you move outward, you have you have this. Uh, these waves of this concept being passed along. So would it would it not be wrong to say that the Kohanim represent the original model for what the entire nation was to be? Was was to be obviously the, the weren't the tribes all supposed to be priests, and yet they still. For, it, it seems to me that that what happens here in this in this parsha is the is that the priesthood is a reminder. Of of what um, Israel said at Sinai when they, they gave the Torah, when Hashem gave the Torah, we will do, and we will hear, and this is the answer. Like, well, what are we going to do? This is what you're going to do. Everything described in this parsha, and the and and how it's carried out, and 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 all of the minutia, is really what Israel is supposed to to do, and that's how Israel brings down holiness. The priesthood bring it down primarily by bringing down holiness, and literally their actions uh, ensure that the Shekinah will will continually descend over the Har Habayit, down over the, the side of the the Holy of Holies. But yet, by doing this, they're teaching Israel that they're, they're teaching the the other tribes how to conduct them lives and how to make every action that they conduct to be of ho- have be infused with holiness, right? Isn't what this is? Yeah. This is all about this. It's um, a very beautiful idea. You know, Jim, we're just about out of time, but I, 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 you asked me to remind you. You wanted to talk about why Moshe Rabbeinu's name is not in the parsha. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are so many different ideas given by the sages. My favorite is is uh, from uh, the the very famous Vilna Gaon. According to him, the reason that, that Moshe's name does not appear in this Parsha is because this Parsha is generally read in Adar, most generally. And, of course, what happened in, in Adar was the passing of Moshe Rabbeinu on the 7th of Adar. So there, there, he, he says that it's, it's a reminder uh, that, that Moshe is, is missing from, from the community after a while. And that it reminds us of, of his leaving the earthly realm. But I want to posit one other addition to all the other pensions. This is me just speculating. Um, would, it, would his name not be missing from this Parsha because 
We know Moshe was, respo- was, was responsible for writing down the text of the Torah. Could it, have, could it have been the idea that Moshe did not put his name down because he felt that, that his brother Aaron and that the whole entire uh, services of the Kohanim uh, really represented the primal teaching of the Torah and the, and the reason for being, which is the service and duty of the heart which is what Israel is supposed to be about. Is Does that does that seem to be in line with this idea? I like it. it. I like it. So you mean it's kind of like an, a gesture of humility. Exactly. That he left his name Exactly. Wow, the most humble, the humblest man around, uh, no, right. in the, ever, whoever existed, right? The Torah says that. Mm-hmm. Moshe had to write that. <laughs> and and it's, it's almost like, well, this time around, I'm leaving my name out because we don't, no. because this, all the glory goes to my brother Aaron, you know. So that's just my own speculation. Beautiful. So That is very beautiful, Jim. Thank you so much. Well, wishing our audience a wonderful week of Purim joy here in the small Adar, 60 days of joy, double, double your fun, double your pleasure. Two Adars. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.